Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Before I launch into today's Spirit in Action, I want to remind you to go to northernspiritradio.org and fill out our listener survey. Clock's ticking, folks, to give us a glimpse of you and to be entered into our drawing for either $25 or some Northern Spirit Radio riches, like a t-shirt, tote bag, and some music. Post a comment on a program while you're there. We love hearing from you. Again, nordenspiritradio.org. But on to today's Spirit in Action. Sometimes the truest pulse of our country and culture is in the music of the times, and that of Billie Holiday's music has loads to tell us about the early to mid-1900s, about her, and about the hopes and fears that lead to today and inform our future. I was intrigued especially by a book by Tracy Fessingdon in a series called Religion Around, the specific book being called Religion Around, Billie Holiday. This is an in-depth look into the interplay of music like gospel, blues, jazz, and swing, fed by the African-American culture and experience, and religious and spiritual currents connecting or separating us. Tracy looks at it in myriad ways, and over it all is the haunting, inspirational, evocative voice and message of Billie Holiday, best known for her version of Strange Fruit. Here's a snippet of that song by Billie Holiday before we get Tracy Fessington on the phone. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves. Tracy, thank you so very much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. I'm delighted to be here with you. Here in Wisconsin, it's raining pretty much uh, over the last few days, and we've got up over 90 degrees. Can you top that? I can top that temperature-wise, yes. We're heading for 100 today, although still very dry, so it's quite lovely. I think for today, I would prefer to be here, but check back with me in in a month. (laughs) (laughs) And are you an Arizona native? Where do you come from? Yes. Oh, I'm not a native. No, I grew up in New England outside of Boston and lived in New York and Virginia before coming here. And where in your peregrinations did you intersect with the music of Billie Holiday? I'm not even sure. I remember the first time I, I heard Billie Holiday. I don't remember when it was, but I certainly remember the feeling, which is that this is both like something I had never heard before. And at the same time, it sounded familiar to me because I could tell or I came to hear all of the ways in which everyone who has followed Billie Holiday has tried to sound like her or take her sound into consideration in some way. I was an undergrad at Yale and the radio station there was a jazz station and I wasn't quite sophisticated enough yet to appreciate it. But when I tuned into our school station, I might have first heard Billie Holiday there and been able to think about her in the way that I came to. My dad was a big Janis Joplin fan, and there's a Janis Joplin-Billy Holiday connection through Bessie Smith, so that might also have started me on my path. 
I think I was a very young Janis Joplin fan because my dad had great musical taste and we would go for long car trips. He was a geologist and did field work throughout New England and we would listen to probably what was AM radio at the time, but he always would introduce me to good music and I remember when we heard Janis Joplin or Lou Reed or anything from the soundtrack of Woodstock, he would say, that's good, you know, listen to this, this is good music. So that's what I grew up hearing as a very, very young child and then in college and then later graduate school came to appreciate older music from the 30s and 40s, which now I adore listening to. And I think it's made me a better listener of music in general. So the book you've just written, Religion Around Billie Holiday, it comes from Penn State University Press. How much did you have to pay them for the privilege of writing this book about Billie Holiday? Well, you know, this is a very interesting question now for authors because there's not much money to be made in book writing, especially on university presses, if you can believe it. And it used to be that we would make a little bit in royalties, and I'm sure I'll see something, but mostly this was, of course, a labor of love. When I said yes to the project, I knew right away that it would be both a challenge and a cheat in the sense that what could be more soul-satisfying than committing oneself to listening to Billie Holiday for the time it would take to write this book challenge in the sense that the premise for the series, the Religion Around series, is that we can learn something useful, valuable, illuminating perhaps about any iconic figure in the arts or culture by studying religion around that person, even if that person, the icon at the center of the inquiry, was not him or herself religious in any discernible way, was perhaps even you know, committedly non-religious. And I knew that Billie Holiday didn't come with what I think of as that big church sound that we associate with so many of her contemporaries, so many of the great women singers in the 20th century, people like Mahalia Jackson or Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey, later Aretha Franklin, even Whitney Houston come out of that black church culture where they learned to sing in church, learned to sing in big voices of praise, even if they turned their attention to more secular kinds of singing later. I knew Billie Holiday didn't have that sound, and I didn't know anything else about her religious background, what there may have been of it. So it was a challenge to me to say, yes, I can write about religion in the world, the life, the sound of this figure without there necessarily being any discernible religious connection in her life that I could pursue. But of course, I was very surprised at what I did find. So if you come from religious studies, why? That's kind of my big question. I tend to think some people are born with religion and therefore they just do that religion, right? I was born Catholic. I've been Quaker ever since I've been an adult, but some people just follow that path. But a lot of people who do their religion see their mission as making grace present in the world. How does that work for you, Tracy? You know, that is uh, such an interesting question to put to religious studies scholars. If you came to our annual meeting, which we have every year in November, when you look around, you see people from extraordinarily different backgrounds with very different agendas and commitments, Buddhist monks, Catholic nuns, resolutely secular scholars, which is true for most of us. A large percentage of religious studies scholars in the U.S. at least came out of evangelical backgrounds and then moved away from those, but found that they couldn't really shake that patterning and became very interested in their own religious patterning as a way of being in the world, as a way of understanding the world, whether or not they continue to identify as Christian or as a believer in, in any sense, and found that a useful lens on which to turn on other groups of people, other kinds of historical figures other cultural formations. 
So most people who come to religious studies come with some background or some baggage, even if you will. And we have learned, I think, many of us to try to turn that into tools for teaching and learning and reading and writing about religion. Others, of course, come in and retain their own religious commitments, their own religious lives. And so you have many people who are committed Quakers, Orthodox Jews, practicing Catholics. I'd say probably they're in the minority in the study of religion. Most people come to this from a very secular set of commitments. Of course, Tracy, the main religion environment that we're going to be talking about today is that around Billie Holiday, because the book is Religion Around Billie Holiday. But I wanted to set the stage for that by understanding what you've dealt with. Are you a practitioner anymore? Have you found a way, if it wasn't such a a gripping environment for you to do alchemy on it, turn lead into (laughs) gold by your study? I don't have an active Catholic practice. That is my background. But I don't necessarily see that as the lead that I needed to transmute into gold because I took a lot of very wonderful gifts, I think, from that background. Also a set of issues or problems that I continue to wrestle with. But I don't see myself as needing to completely transform my upbringing. I see myself as having been given a framework and a set of questions and a set of priorities, perhaps, that come to me from that background. And so it feels to me very normal for someone like Billie Holiday to have had a Catholic upbringing to the degree that she did and then put some distance between herself and the Catholic Church, but still be shaped by, informed by, provoked by, in some ways, her Catholic upbringing and the Catholic presence around her. You know, I saw something online. The great jazz writer Ted Joya posted something about this book. I was delighted to see it. And he mentions Catholicism in his post. One of the people who commented online said, oh, that is hysterical, the LOL. That's the funniest thing I ever heard, that Billie Holiday would have anything at all to do with Catholicism. (laughs) And of course, I, I have no way of reaching this woman, but I want to say, well, you know, would you say the same about Philip Roth and Judaism? Philip Roth famously didn't want any Jewish rituals at all at his funeral, but no one could deny that Philip Roth was largely shaped by American Judaism, American Jewishness, his own background. And he he said he wanted to be buried in a Jewish cemetery so he'd have people to talk to. So, (laughs) you know, someone who does not himself have any kind of identifiable Jewish practice is entirely steeped in Judaism. And I hope that we will begin to be able to say that about other figures, that this person, James Baldwin, for example, very steeped in Pentecostalism. Billie Holiday, I see her as being very shaped by Catholicism. So I'd like for this series to open up that possibility for other iconic figures, that we will be able to say that about other figures as well. Well, I think if people aren't aware of Billie Holiday's Catholic background, I mean, I think she was baptized around the time. Maybe she was nine or something. Her first stint in, what was it called? Lady the House of the Good Shepherd. House of the Good Shepherd. Uh, for colored girls, though, of course. Yes, yes, yeah, the, yes. the branch. She couldn't have the whites and the, the blacks together at that point. So she did two stints in there. One protective and maybe the other one rehabilitative, I guess you'd say? Yes. Well, those are generous descriptions, yes. Her first period of residence there began when she was not quite 10 years old, and she was sent because she was deemed to be without proper guardianship. She was basically a street kid who moved around and bounced around between different houses, different relatives, sometimes no guardianship whatsoever. So she was assigned to the custody of the Sisters of the Good Shepherd, along with you know many, many dozens of African-American girls in Baltimore at the time. Billie Holiday's own mother had spent more than five years in the House of the Good Shepherd as a board of the sisters there. So that was an experience that she had some familiarity with, perhaps. 
Her first stint ended when she was not quite 11, but then she was sent back because she was caught up in what seems like a sex trafficking proceeding. If you know her autobiography or your listeners are familiar with the autobiography that she wrote with William Dufty, Lady Sings the Blues, she describes only one period at the House of the Good Shepherd and says that she was sent there because she was raped by an older man. That is a reference to what it looks like did happen when she was 11. Her mother, who was in and out of her life, uh, lived in New York for much of the time, but would come to visit her in Baltimore, where Billie Holiday lived, either with a relative or in a boarding house or sometimes with pimps and madams, it appears. Her mother was back in town and threatened to put Billy, then Eleonora was her name, in a home, meaning send her back to the House of the Good Shepherd. And so young Billie Holiday, Eleanor Guff, not quite 12, ran away to the house of a musician whom she knew and then to the home of a couple who knew her and had exploited her in the past. So when these adults were brought before a judge, the musician, 40, a 40-year-old musician, was charged with carnal knowledge of a minor, as was the man in the couple, the second house that she sought shelter of whatever kind at, and the woman was arrested for sexually trafficking a minor. So this seemed to be a world that Billie Holiday was familiar with already at that age. She ran to you know, the house of prostitution in order to escape being sent to the house of the Good Shepherd, where she ended up anyway for a couple of months at least in that second period of residence. What I read, I think, in your book, I, I've read other sources about her as well, is just before 14 is when the first time she started doing tricks as prostitute, $5 a throw or something like that, which I suppose at that date was kind of a princely sum, maybe. <laughs> she was probably working as a prostitute when she was much younger than that, probably already when she was 11 and 12 in Baltimore. When she did get to New York, where she started singing at about the age of 14 in the very late 20s, she spent some time in a welfare island workhouse, a prison for women, where she and her mother were both sent on prostitution charges. And Billie Holiday was living at that time with a, a madam, with someone who ran a house of prostitution. Her mother had sent her to live there. She claims in the book it was because she wouldn't have sex with someone who came in and struck her as very dangerous and aggressive and she was being self-protective. What seems to have happened is that her protection racket failed her at that point. And it was actually a cop who wanted to have sex with her and ended up putting her and her mother both in jail. What the true story is, is perhaps even darker still. But by that time, she was fairly seasoned, I think, as someone who was used to being exploited. You point out, Tracy, in the book that there's a lot of mythology that has grown around her, and she participated in making it. She told different stories of her life, and different people around her told stories differently than what she experienced. Part of this is if you're a stage performer, you've got a persona to build or to make. Did the prostitution, did that element of her life, maybe it's her kind of her day job or a night job while she's singing, you know, musicians often have to work somewhere else while they're climbing the ladder. Did she employ that as part of her shtick about who she was? I think she certainly did, and she wouldn't have been the first. One of the musical traditions that shaped her was the European cabaret tradition, where a woman like Marlene Dietrich or Edith Piaf would sing a song in the persona of a prostitute, uh, and this was a very common cabaret convention uh, in France and Europe. Harlem Cabaret drew many of its influences from European cabaret, so that would not have been an unusual persona to adopt. What I think is so interesting about Billie Holiday is that in regard to this self-making as a particular kind of character, if you will, 
is that she, in the House of the Good Shepherd, was exposed to the stories. Of, first of all, she was in there with many, many other girls who were sexually trafficked or who were at risk of being sexually abused and exploited at home, perhaps were so abused. And some of them even decided to stay in the House of the Good Shepherd in perpetuity so that they would not return to these very punishing environments. So she was with other girls who had sexual experience in this very dark register. She was also exposed with them to the stories of women saints in the Catholic tradition who were remembered for their lives as what would have been known then as fallen women, women who had fallen into forms of despair that were very sexually coded, sexually charged, and yet then were able to create, in the iconography at least, lives of beauty and sanctity and holiness and in the stories that grew up around them. So she had this as a model that one could rise from the very darkest kinds of experiences and create something very beautiful, very moving, very piercing virtually and do so without leaving that punishing history behind, but transforming it into something that could be shared with others. You mentioned, Tracy, in the book that in the House of the Good Shepherd, there's kind of two or three track groupings there. And that in some kind of odd, to my way of thinking, rather perverted thing, kind of a highest aspiration maybe might be to be one of the Magdalens. Yes, yes. These fallen women who take it on as their scourge or, you know, hooray, I'm a fallen woman or something like that. Yes, you're right that the highest aspiration for the teaching sisters, at least, is that their charges never leave. And there was, of course, in their rule books and in their own understanding of their mission, a resigned acceptance of the fact that many of the kids who come in for protection will, once returned to the street, come back then in that more penitential or punitive class of girls who are brought in to be reformed from their sexual sins, their sexual experience. And then of that group, some may elect to stay in perpetuity and become what were known as Magdalens who took the veil, they wore the habit of the sisters, they lived in a cloistered environment, that is, they didn't have lives in the world, they weren't teaching sisters or nursing sisters, their vocation was prayer, and they lived in the house of the Good Shepherd in perpetuity. And at the time that Billie Holiday was there, she would have had contact with these Magdalens. In fact, one older girl who was at the House of the Good Shepherd for decades, probably as a Magdalene, was Billie Holiday's godmother when she was baptized. But these girls did, yes, take the name of Mary Magdalene, remembered, perhaps not entirely accurately, but remembered as both a prostitute and as the most intimate disciple of Jesus. So her fallenness, her objection is intimately tied with her vocation and with her sanctity. And this model was very much the model for girls at the House of the Good Shepherd, even those who didn't graduate, as it were, into the class of Magdalens, the sisters who stayed on in perpetuity as fallen women who had been redeemed. All girls who came through the House of the Good Shepherd had that as the possible path that they were on. Billie Holiday began, as you said, Mark, as one of these street kids who was there for her protection, was returned as a penitent, as someone who had had sexual experience that needed somehow to be incorporated into a new life, a new persona. She didn't stay on as a Magdalene, but when she left after her second stint, then she did take a new name as a Magdalene would, and the name that she took was Billie Holiday. Yeah, so she went from being Eleonora Fagan, and Fagan is the name she got from her mother, how much was Clarence Holiday in her life upcoming? And he was a performer too, so you know she has some genes for it, I guess. 
Yes, yes. Well, he was in Fletcher Henderson's band. He was uh, well-known in Baltimore as a guitarist, a string man. He played the banjo as well. He was a, an intimate of Elmer Snowden, a musician who claimed that he was Billie Holiday's godfather, that Clarence Holiday had asked him to be Eleonora's godfather. But he doesn't seem to have been in her life much as a child. When she came to New York and began her singing career, then she formed a more durable relationship with him. I don't know that they were ever particularly close. He was only about 17 years older than she was, and he would say to her, don't tell people that you're my daughter because I don't want them to think I'm that old. <laughs> so he had a couple of wives, I guess, in New York and may also have been married in Baltimore. He never married Billie Holiday's mother. So he was a character with the, the kind of character that she was familiar with. When he died in Dallas, uh, it was Billie Holiday who was asked to come collect the body. So she did have some connection with him, some legal and familial connection with him. But he was not present in her uh, childhood to any really noticeable degree. One of the things that's so amazing, I think Billie Holiday and her music, they're so esteemed. She's esteemed. The music is esteemed. And I think that was true very widely in an age when I don't think you were supposed to like blacks. I mean, if you're a white person, you're supposed to look down on them, revile them. And yet things were changing. One of the big changing points for the United States from a class I took while I was in college, I, I became aware that pre and post World War II, it was so important for the U.S. to win the Cold War. And so therefore, you had to have all these other countries of the world supporting you that that's why lynching, I understand, went down to a tenth of what it had been just in 10 years. I mean, dramatic differences like that happened. But she is a case of a face and a voice that was well-known in Europe as well as in the United States. Was her fan base all across the board racially? Well, I'll say yes to that, racially and nationally. I also want to just say a little bit more about that history you've sketched, that history of progress. We like to think of it as a history of progress. But that history was very, very uneven, of course, and had a lot of exploitation built into it. For example, many, many white audiences were drawn to Billie Holiday and other African-American performers in the 20s and 30s, but often in a, a setting that was itself very exploitative. Women who were hired to dance and sing, African-American women to dance and sing at the Cotton Club, for example, were promoted as very beautiful, very sexualized objects, really. And white audiences were the only ones permitted to attend these shows. Black patrons were not allowed at the Cotton Club. So the Cotton Club, in a sense, was a microcosm for a large swath of black entertainment in New York. Incredibly talented, incredibly accomplished black performers performed for white audiences who saw themselves as slumming, perhaps, or as taking advantage of a kind of forbidden excitement, a forbidden thrill. So Billie Holiday was part of that, needed to navigate that of course, as all black performers did. The history of minstrelsy, of course, is so complicated. When black performers were allowed to take on some of these minstrel roles that had been played in the past by white performers pretending to be black, they had that whole history of stereotype, of objection to work with, to inhabit, perhaps to change in ways, and certainly many of them did. But that history of black performers gaining white renown, gaining renown among white audiences is a very, very checkered history. And certainly, I think, is not one we can understand as clear path or a steady path of progress. 
in the First World War, African-American troops who served, especially those who served overseas, were in Europe where they were regarded differently, treated differently. Many African-American soldiers in World War One who were there as part of military marching bands were able to stay and create a musical scene in Paris that was very uh, centered on African-American performance and a very different kind of reception that, than they would have gotten at home. Those who came back to the United States often gravitated towards cities. A, a big part of the Great Migration was mobilized, I think, by the First World War and by soldiers who came back and said, I'm not going back to Alabama or Mississippi after serving in Europe and seeing what is possible in terms of the way all of us are regarded. In the Second World War, again, troops were segregated. African-American soldiers were typically given flunky roles. They were the cooks. They were the ambulance drivers. They were the ones who followed after the battles and buried the dead. But after the Second World War, as you pointed out, the United States really needed now to compete with the Soviet Union to gain a foothold in Europe's former colonies. And one of the Soviet Union's strategies, very effective strategy, was to say, how can the United States offer you freedom if they can't even offer freedom to their citizens at home, to their African-American citizens at home? And so as part of that Cold War diplomacy, the State Department began sending African-American performers into uh, Europe's former colonies in Africa and Asia. Louis Armstrong famously was uh, one of the big State Department's prizes. Dizzy Gillespie, Ella Fitzgerald went to these former colonies in Africa and Asia to represent a wonderfully integrated United States, which was not yet wonderfully integrated. It was partly their intervention, I think, that helped that progress to continue to take form, to take shape. But again, the path was very rocky and steep. And Billie Holiday often just opted out of it, didn't see herself as carrying a banner for racial progress or justice, even though, of course, uh, her song Strange Fruit really became a kind of anthem of the civil rights movement. Folks, we are speaking with Tracy Fessenden today about her book, Religion Around Billie Holiday for Spirit in Action. You've just been talking, Tracy, about a lot of the complexities around race in the United States at that time. And you do such a wonderful job in the book of tracing so many cultural threads. I mean, there's racism, there's ethnicism, I guess you'd call it also. There's also what happens with religion, and there's music, which is a, a kind of its own cultural tide that's going on. Race is so important but Billie Holiday, I think she kind of sits in the middle, if you will. She's not a dark, dark African-American. What part of her heritage was European, African back? How, do you know about that lineage? Or does anybody know for that matter? <laughs> I know that her mother, Sadie Fagan, came from a family of descendants of a Virginia plantation owner and one of his slaves. And her father, Charles Fagan, was light enough to pass for white. So there was a slave-owning genealogy that produced Billie Holiday. She herself, I think listeners are probably aware of the fact that when you look at pictures of Billie Holiday, she often looks very different from photograph to photograph. She had an amazingly mobile set of expressions. Sometimes she was beautifully bold in her appearance. Sometimes she was emaciated and frail. And so she looks very different. And when people try to place her racially, Artie Shaw, the white band leader who toured with Billie Holiday in the late 30s, very unusually, he was the first white band to bring with him an African-American singer. 
And Billie Holiday, of course, was not just a singer. She was not just there for decoration, as many of the uh, women who accompanied the big bands were, were regarded as being. She was very much a part of the band. But when they would try to check into a hotel in one of the southern cities or even northern cities where African-Americans were not welcome at whites-only hotels, he said he would speak to her in Spanish and the management would pick up on the cue that she was Spanish and that was okay. If she was Spanish, she could, she could stay, but not if she were, she were African-American. There are other stories of her touring with black bands and being asked by the management to black up so that she didn't look like a white singer with a black band. So she was made to wear you know, grease paint so that she would look more African-American. When she played with Artie Shaw in New York City, she was not allowed to sit on the stage. She was not allowed to sit in the bar or to uh, arrive in the same elevator with the band. She had to wait by the toilets between sets because it was deemed unseemly for her to appear near the band when she wasn't actually singing. So, I mean, she had this to deal with wherever she was, whether she was touring in the South or whether she was singing in Baltimore, whether she was, you know, headlining in New York. This was her reality. And there was the period where she became a felon because of drug use. And then it sounds to me like she was pursued, set up, tracked. Was is there any sense in which that pursuit of her about this came because of her race or was it simply because she's well known or is it just because everybody who uses drugs is an evil person? <laughs> I think it's because she was very beautiful and was very edgy and well known and the drug czar at that time named Harry Anslinger sort of a Herbert Hoover-like figure put his stamp on the institution of drug policy in the United States, he was besotted with her in a sense, and he himself wanted to be in the headlines and wanted to be famous. And so he made it his job to track celebrities. He thought that that would be the best way to send the message he wanted to send about drugs. And of course, this is the age of True Detective and you know other magazines that made criminals into very glamorous figures, beginning in Prohibition. Anyone who took a drink was a criminal, so that we could all sort of participate in that world, if only in imagination. And they were very glamorous criminals to be tracked, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, Al Capone, and so on. So Billie Holiday sort of comes out of that tradition. She was a very glamorous figure whom law enforcement could track in ways that would make them very visibly seem competent and seem on top of things and get in the kinds of papers that they wanted to get into. Most performers of her stature did have sufficient protection so that they wouldn't end up in jail. For example, Louis Armstrong was never going to go to jail for weed, even though he, he smoked it very openly. But Billie Holiday, who had the same manager as Louis Armstrong for much of her life, Joe Glazer, seemed not to have the same level of protection. And I think that a part of the reason is because her management, too, wanted to capitalize on her being glamorous. Uh, her having a particular kind of public persona as someone who was a little bit dangerous. And so her management would not protect her to the same degree that someone like Judy Garland's management protected her, even though she too was a heroin user. So it was part of the persona that she created that was created for her, that she constantly needed to work within, that also kept her very much in the shadow of the law for her whole life. It was the case that many African-American performers were denied what in New York were called cabaret cards. Nina Simone, Thelonious Monk, uh, Charlie Parker, all of them, because they had histories of arrest, were not allowed legally to sing or play in nightclubs in New York that served liquor 
ironically. So yes, this happened to African-American performers far more than to white performers. Uh, Frank Sinatra refused to even get a cabaret card. He said, if you have trouble with that, you know, speak to my management, meaning the mafia who protected him pretty carefully. We're going to continue talking to Tracy Fessenden about religion around Billie Holiday in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you, you are listening to Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our site where you'll find links to our guests. You want to track down Tracy, her book, and many other things that she's referring to. Come to the site. We've got those links for all of our guests for the last 13 years, plus many more tidbits of information, including some bonus excerpts from our interviews, stuff that didn't air as part of this broadcast. There's also a place to post comments. Two-way communication, folks. It's the best. Please post a comment when you visit and consider clicking on the donate button, which is how this full-time work is supported. Not by corporations, not by government, not by Arizona State University, where, after all, Tracy is from, where she's a professor. It's because you, the listener, support us. As part of that, I'd mentioned, by the way, that for just a couple more weeks, we are doing a Better Know Your Listener survey on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website. Please click that, and you'll be entered into a drawing for some of our fine swag. We've got beautiful Northern Spirit Radio t-shirts and tote bags, or $25, your choice. So please do fill out our listener survey and let us know who you are, who's listening to this at the many stations across the country. We are carried on some 34 stations nationwide. We do want you first to support those stations. It's so important to have alternative sources of information rather than the narrow pipeline of of the six or so owners of 90% of the media in this country. So please start by supporting your local community radio station. Again, my guest, Tracy Fessenden, is a professor at Arizona State University, and that is in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies. I guess religious studies is how you got there, Tracy, but I'm pretty clear that you're very strong on the historical as well. Is there a sense in which you should have a master's or PhD in all three of the, for anyone, or is that just exceptional? (laughs) I think uh, that would be lovely if uh, we had more students pursuing uh, master's and PhDs in all three of these subjects. But certainly you don't need a master's or PhD to listen to Billie Holiday and enjoy her immensely. Yes. And I do want to mention that previous book you had, Culture and Redemption, Religion, the Secular and American Literature. Can you say a few words about that book? I haven't seen it and I don't really know what it's about. Yes, well, that book is uh, an attempt to read secular American culture, primarily literature, but also other written forms, from the Puritans through the Jazz Age, is where I leave off, to see how America becomes more secular, but also retains a very uh, strong and formative deposit of Christianity that acts in some ways for good and in other ways for ill. So what motivated it was the question of if America is supposed to be a secular country with the separation of church and state, why are Christian institutions, specifically conservative Christian institutions, so enduringly powerful? How is there room for conservative Christianity to be so powerful in a, a nation that is ostensibly secular? So because my training is in literature, I try to track it through literature, but there are so many wonderful and recent works on uh, secularism that track that movement through other kinds of forms. But, you know, I leave off with F. Scott Fitzgerald in the Jazz Age, so when I 
agreed to do this book and the first name to emerge in this conversation about whom I might want to write about, the first name was Billie Holiday. It does pick up nicely where I left off. I wasn't aware of that at the time, but that made for a nice continuity, I think. We were talking a bit about race and a bit about drugs earlier. And again, Billie Holiday, Eleanor at the time, at the point when she lived in the House of the Good Shepherd and under this strong Catholic influence and therefore religious influence, some people, I think, could see her performing career, that track in her life, as giving in to most vices that are available. You know, she's smoking, she's drinking, and she's doing drugs, and she's as sexy as all get out, all those evil things, which I don't really tend to think any of them is evil. Some, I think, are not smart, but I don't tend to think of evil. Sin, for me, has a particular signification that I don't usually use the word sin, but I think of race and slavery as the inherited sin that we have in this country. Sex, I always think, is a crazy thing to put into a list of sins, especially since it's so important. But drugs and hedonism, is there a sense in which by promoting, I guess, hedonism, that she was a danger to our country? Is that why she needed to be repressed by the system? You know, that uh, storyline that she was dangerous, that strange fruit made people nervous, that that's why she was tracked down, that's why she was hounded by the feds for her drug use when so many other jazz musicians and others escaped uh, being pursued in the way that she was. That makes a tight storyline, I think, but I don't know that that's why she was hounded in quite the way she was. I think when she sang Strange Fruit, which is as riveting now as ever to hear, certainly as political now as ever, when the current president was gathering entertainment for his inaugural, a British soul singer named Rebecca Ferguson was invited to sing, and she said, uh, sure, I'll sing at the Trump inaugural if I can sing Strange Fruit. And someone on that committee knew enough to say, no, we, we that cut a little too close to what this is about. So very, very political. And, you know, th this is why I think she was never a jazz ambassador. She was never sent to represent American greatness abroad because, you know, she had a very cool appraisal of what America had done and, and would do in the way of, of racial justice and racial equality. And when she sang Strange Fruit, she was casting that eye on not only the American past, but the American present. When her father died, because as she understood, he didn't seek care at a hospital in Dallas because he couldn't find a hospital that would take uh, African-American patients. He had pneumonia and he bled to death before he was treated. She said that that was a lynching. It was as much a lynching as had he been strung up. So she understood lynching to be something that was very much present in 1938, 1939, when she sang that song. It wasn't necessarily something that we would leave behind or simply progress beyond. It was a reality that we needed to take account of and look at very, very clearly. And Strange Fruit certainly made people uncomfortable for that reason, still does. But one of the things about Strange Fruit, even though it's Billie Holiday's song, it's not her song. I mean, I don't think she wrote it. I mean, there's some contention about who has rights to this, that, or the other portion of it. Yes, and that is a very interesting conflict. The song was written for her or shown to her as a song that she might possibly sing by a Jewish labor leader and poet and activist named Abel Mirapol, who was an extraordinary figure in the 20th century. He was a very gifted poet and songwriter. He was also 
a real social justice warrior. He did all kinds of incredible things in the name of racial equality and equality for, for all Americans. When the Rosenbergs, Ethel and Julius, were killed in the electric chair for espionage, he adopted their two children, the two young boys who were left orphaned by this execution, didn't even know them, but adopted them. And these young, now Mirapal boys became themselves very powerful activists uh, who were very helpful to me in, in telling this story. When Abel Mirapal wrote Strange Fruit, he's a white Jewish activist, very left-leaning son of immigrants uh, from the terrorism of the old world, really saw African-Americans and Jews as sharing a particular history, sharing a particular struggle. And when he wrote about lynching, uh, elsewhere in his, in his writing, he talked about knowing, understanding lynching because he was a Jew. And this is before the Holocaust when he wrote Strange Fruit, of course. But he said, I am a Jew. How may I tell the Negro lynched reminds me well. I am a Jew. I, I, he saw himself in the figure of the lynched African-American. So he wrote this song, and Billy Holiday's manager at that time, who ran Cafe Society in Greenwich Village, also uh, the son of uh, Jewish immigrants, Barney Josephson, brought this to Billie Holiday, and she said, yes, she would sing it. And of course, as your listeners know, Mark, anything that Billie Holiday sang, she put her distinctive stamp on. So it sounded different when she and her instrumentalists got through with the arrangement than it had when Mirapal scored the song. In fact, when he scored the song, it almost had the quality of a march. It was very propulsive, very forward-moving in its sound. She, of course, sings it as a kind of a dirge, and in Lady Sings the Blues, her autobiography, she mentions working on this song with her accompanists. So Mirapal saw that and said, oh, no, you know, she didn't write the music for the song. I wrote the song Words and Music. And he really made a campaign of being recognized as the sole composer uh, and lyricist for this song. It was never cleared up to his satisfaction or to his son's satisfaction. And it's a very poignant conflict, I think, because Mirapal, understandably and quite rightly, wanted to take full credit for the song, not only as the artistic genius behind the song, but as someone who really was committed to a particular vision of Jewish and African-American collaboration in civil rights and committed to a very progressive vision of civil rights. And when Billie Holiday sings the song, it doesn't have that progressive feel to it necessarily. She is witnessing to a reality that needs to be counted for, needs to be changed, but she's not providing a program for how to do it. And so that, I think, is the root of the conflict, that they had very different visions for the song. For Mirapal, lynching was something that we could leave behind. We were moving forward. And for Billie Holiday, this was the reality in the present as she was singing. People who have heard her sing the song have said, you're there, you're at the foot of the tree when she's singing. And so it was a different kind of temporal relationship to the scene of lynching that I think divided Mirapal, the composer, and Billie Holiday, the performer on Strange Fruit. One of the things, I guess it's an impression I have, and I don't know if it's valid, so I want to check it with you, Tracy, because after all, Tracy Fessenden has done the research. You'll know this is well-researched from so many parts of American society and musical society. But one of the questions I have, you characterize Mirapol as a social justice warrior. I do not have the sense at all that Billie Holiday was a social justice warrior. She was aware of how it hit her, and she wanted to feed the world. That's one of the things you point out. But there was such a strong strain of 
maybe it's tiredness, hedonism, damage or something, that she did not appear to me to be a crusader at all. Is that a fair characterization? I share that characterization, and readers will decide for themselves, of course. But I think partly that sense of resignation in the face of racial injustice, and not deceit, not capitulation, but a very clear-eyed acceptance that this is the reality and we need to start there. I think that that comes also from her Catholic background, and particularly the role that the crucified Christ played in her Catholic formation. In every room of the House of the Good Shepherd, there was a crucifix, and in every church she ever attended, when she did attend church as a younger woman, had a crucifix with the crucified body of Christ in, in full display. So, Mark, I know you, with a Catholic background, and many of your listeners will also, of course, be aware that when you see the cross in a Catholic church, you see the body. When you see the cross in a Protestant church or a Protestant setting, more often than not, you see the empty cross, just the cross, no tortured, maimed body of Jesus on the cross. When Billie Holiday sings Strange Fruit, I hear her singing directly to that figure of the crucified Christ, the crucified African-American presence in American life. When others sang of lynching or wrote of lynching, and there's very, very little in the way of of acknowledgement of lynching in music before Strange Fruit, maybe some very veiled references in blues, some African-American poets in the Harlem Renaissance talk about lynching, but typically lynching, again, is something that is in the past. An AME minister who was also a poet, Reverdy Ransom, wrote a poem in which he talked about the lynching tree being part of what shaped or polished the Negro, as he called it, in the present, so that made the African-American presence stronger, more resilient. So even the lynching tree becomes a symbol of redemption or a symbol of resurrection to that degree that it was what we leave behind. So he's looking, and of course he's an Afro-Protestant minister, he's looking at the empty cross as I see it. He's looking at the lynching tree, the cross, as a symbol of resurrection, of new life. When Billie Holiday regards the lynching tree or the cross, she sees the tortured body on the cross, on the tree, and that's what she thinks about. This presence, this reality uh, now, this is not something in the past that is salvific or redemptive or makes us better. This is something that we need to contend with right now. So she had that very, very clear-eyed view of lynching and of racial prejudice. And more generally, she was not going to sugarcoat it. She was not going to go to Europe or Asia or Africa and sing about how wonderful things were back home. Of course, no one sang Strange Fruit when they toured on the Jazz Ambassador tours. This was not something that, that <laughs> people were willing to, uh, to revisit on those tours. And interestingly, Mirapol also wrote a song called The House I Live In about America being a haven for all races, all religions. Frank Sinatra sang that song in a very schmaltzy film in 1945. And people would sing that song when they went abroad because it painted a very flattering picture of America. But, of course, Strange Fruit did not. And that's what Billie Holiday wanted to sing. That was her indictment of a racist society. It was not, as you say, a program for improvement, a program for, for betterment. It was uh, J'accuse. It was an accusation. You speak French, do you, Tracy? I had no idea. <laughs> J'accuse. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that has to do with choice of music and theme. I, I've not really thought about it so much. When I became Quaker and started hanging around with the Quakers here in Wisconsin, there's all these songs that I was not raised with as a Catholic. And it's like, oh, I got to add mm -hmm. that one, that one, that one. And I kind of think that maybe We Shall Overcome is maybe more Protestant oriented, whereas, yeah, you so. know, Flower Bruised and Dying and Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. There's a whole realm of 
music, which maybe is better identified with the dead and bleeding Jesus on the cross, as opposed to the bright future. Yes, that's interesting. I mean, most of the spirituals, of course, come out of an Afro-Protestant background, but many of them are, as you say, unflinching accounts of what it is like to be in this situation. And I think that that voice, that more nobody knows the trouble I've seen voice, is one that Billie Holiday was more intimate with, was more familiar with when she picked up that language of the spirituals in some of her other work. One area that we haven't talked about is the abuse that she went through in relationship and which she stayed with, you know what I mean? She, yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, get beat up by someone and so therefore I'm going to marry him. I mean, that doesn't <laughs> quite click in some of our heads. Could you talk a little bit about how that dovetails with her, with her music and maybe with her religious point of view? Yes, I'll do what I can, Mark. It's a very, very complicated, very thorny, entangled question. You know, to segue a little bit from lynching, of course, the reason lynching could be carried out with impunity is because the promise of equal justice for African-Americans was never there and never kept. And as terrorism or spectator sport, white Southerners could rustle up a lynching and would not be punished for it. So African-Americans needed to create a life outside the law in many circumstances because the law was not going to help them. It was not going to be there to protect them. In Billie Holiday's Baltimore, I think this was her particular lawless milieu as well, that she was working probably as a prostitute at age 11 or 12. One of the boys who was a contemporary of Holiday's, who was coming up in the pimp game at the time that she was working as a singer and as a prostitute, most likely, in Baltimore at a very, very young age, said that he would blacken the eyes of all the girls that he controlled, and that's how they would know that they belonged to him, and they were his, and he said they would wear those black eyes like badges of honor. Whether that was true or not, this was the reality that Billie Holiday was brought up in. So for her, abuse at the hands of powerful men was part of her life. As a very young girl, if she was working as a prostitute, which it appears that she was, she would need the protection of these stronger men. When she began working as a performer, she attracted these kinds of men into her life, and many of them were incredibly abusive physically, financially. Her last husband, her terminal husband, as one of her biographers puts it, openly flaunted his mistresses in front of Billie Holiday. He threatened to kill Billie Holiday in a taped phone conversation that I was able to hear. And so she had very, very difficult men around her to whom she gave her money, to whom she felt apparently that she owed some kind of allegiance or some kind of loyalty. So I think part of this is just the reality that stayed with her from a very young age. Part of it is her sense that no one is going to get her out of these relationships. You know, when she says in Ain't Nobody's Business, if I do, I'm not going to call no coppa if I get beat up by my papa. The unspoken line is, because who's going to do anything? Who would ever come to my aid? So how does one make one's way in this lawless environment where abuse is a way of life? I think in singing those kinds of songs, in a sense boasting of her ability to stand up to this kind of punishment, she is projecting herself as the equal of any form of punishment that comes her way. She will not be defeated by it. She will not be vanquished by it. If this is her reality, she is every bit the equal to that reality. And I think certainly in the convent, she was exposed to the stories of women who also had very punishing kinds of relationships, sometimes sought out punishment. As you know, in the Catholic tradition, there are many, many saints and martyrs who seem to have gotten spiritual mileage from various forms of self-harm. 
So this was not uh, this was not foreign to her. So without in any way trying to normalize this, uh, I think we do want to acknowledge that this was her reality. These were her materials, and from those materials, she crafted the performer we know as Billie Holiday. And that's why Tracy Fessenden writes around these things in Religion Around Billie Holiday. Again, that's the book we're talking about for Spirit in Action today. There's a really important thing, Tracy, that I haven't asked you. And I thought a lot about it in the course of reading this book. You know, it's close to 200 pages, and it's so rich with knowledge and, I think, insight into our society. But my question still is, once we read this book, how is that going to make the world better? That's what I want to know. And what's your take on that? Because I, I have a sense of a compass in you that wants to point to a better world. So why? Well, thank you. That's a beautiful question. And I think that you know, for many listeners, particularly those who are drawn to uh, what we think of as a late Billie Holiday, the period of her life where her voice is very, very broken, if you will, there is a discernment in her, in her voice, in her persona, in her sound of the need for compassion, compassion for all who struggle as Billie Holiday struggled, as those with whom she made her world certainly struggled. And Mark, you pointed out that she made a life of hospitality in an unusual way. Whenever she had money, she gave it away. When she had an apartment, she opened it up to anyone who wanted to come for a meal or who needed a bed. She called herself at one point a mother superior who operated a soup kitchen. That's how she, she saw herself. And in that sense, she was carrying forward, I think, the most benign aspect of her very difficult Catholic childhood, the idea of hospitality, the idea of giving shelter to those in need. And at the end of her life, when she had both physically in terms of her health, financially, she was never able to really be at all comfortable financially. But when all she had to give really was her voice and her sound, I think many people heard and continue to hear in that sound an invitation to extend those kinds of hospitality and compassion and understanding to anyone who might be going through anything. Because you listen to Billie Holiday and boy, you know, she's gone through something, right? She's been through something. So when we hear that, can we train our ears and our minds, our inner lives to hear that, to practice that discernment in the rest of our lives? And that's what I hope people will gain by listening to Billie Holiday, maybe in in this fuller way. Well, it's one of many gifts of the book Religion Around Billie Holiday by Tracy Fessenden. I have a link that'll get you to her, and she is, of course, a professor at the School of Historical Philosophical Religious Study at Arizona State University. And she's got another book, again, it's called Culture and Redemption, Religion, the Secular and American Literature. So I think you'll learn a lot from both of her books and by listening to her some more. I I wish we could have some more time to talk, Tracy, but I do appreciate so much your work delving into this beautiful music that touches something in us, I think because of the struggle that it amplifies. And I thank you so much for taking this hour to talk to me today for Spirit in Action. Oh, Mark, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed it. Again, the links are on northernspiritradio.org, as well as our listener survey. We'd love to have you fill it out within the next couple weeks so we can better know you. And if you do, you'll be entered into a drawing for either $25 or your choice of some beautiful music and swag from Northern Spirit Radio. And we will see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. 
guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh